This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Quite odd today, Tom. Quite odd. Well, I guess if you want to classify as odd, it's different. We're going to be going a little bit uh, to the land down under, and we're going to look at something that I didn't really know much about until we uh, you brought it up to talk about, and we said, let's do it. And we're going to be looking at the Great Emu War you know, yeah. that takes place in Australia. And this is actually a real thing. The yeah. army waged war against emus in Australia. And they lost. Well, yes. Everywhere I looked at it, it was like they waged war against the emus and they lost. And I was like, all right. So first of all, this got me into this like whole internet deep search of emus. All right. What do I know about emus? So like that was my first thing. And it's actually originated from my wife. She was like, did you know there was this like Australian emu war where the military was sent? And I was like, first of all, you don't even like history. Like, how do you know this? She's like, oh, it popped up somewhere for me. So, you know, it's one of those like quick Google searches. And then I'm like. Okay, wait, this is for real? And then that got me going and thinking, like, like what do we know about emus? Hey, so that's went down like went down the rabbit hole, basically. Often we or do. Like, I always tell my students that I, the biggest person to distract you in this entire class is usually me. Like, I'm like a cat with a laser pointer. Someone says, hey, what about, you know, this? And I'm like, well, actually, boom, off tangent. Yeah, Still historical, but off tangent. Get a little off topic. It's, it, it's part of the fun, I guess. It's part of the fun. That's right. So I think we'll we'll start off with like what do we know about emus, and then from there on we'll get <laughs> we'll, well right. I mean I want to emu is now going to be the official mascot of the history teachers talking podcast. It really should honestly. If we're going to have one, I think this is going to be the one. I mean, maybe no we can adopt one or something like that. Well, you All can't right. because they're they're not even like threatened conservation status, and yeah. they're of least concern. Like they're Literally. not even after this war. No, nah, there's just too many emus out there. So they're, they're basically they're basically I guess they're like deer would be here. That's what they are basically. In Australia. in Australia, for the most part, what I'm making. Right. So. Yeah, what are emus? Uh, it is the second tallest living bird. You know, next Flight to the ass. ostrich. Flight. Imagine if these things could fly, though. Because remember, they're oh, like over six. The average emu is um, six, six, uh, six point two feet tall. Yeah, so it's pretty big. So imagine if these things were like flying around, like attacking people or whatever. Dude, I don't crazy. know if we would be here right now if this yeah, was. I know. If they, and and they're fast too, like you said. Yeah. yeah, thirty miles per hour. They run thirty miles per hour, and they're six two in height. I mean, that's pretty scary for a bird. And I mean, granted, it can't <laughs> fly. But like, if that thing was running at me, I'd be like, yeah, all right, let's, we're at war now. No, I mean, like war a, more like, I'll run too. It's like, a, yeah, but you're not going to outrun it. I don't, you can't run 30 yeah, miles I can't run hour. 30 miles an hour. That's what I mean. <laughs> this is nuts. Also, like, based on looking at this, Emu's range covers most of mainland Australia, right? That's kind of, it's, it's endemic to Australia. What that means, endemic means that it's like a state of species that's found in a single defined geographic region. Um, you know, island, state, nation, country, whatever, by a defined zone. So in this case, emus are specific to Australia. And as you said, they're, I mean, if I had to compare it to something, we have so many deer, I would would have to think that this is like, you know, something something of that to give like, I guess, a North American perspective of it. Yeah, but like, they're everywhere. I remember my sister spent a whole semester in Australia. She said, yeah, you saw emu coming up things you saw a lot of um particularly p- certain parts same with our kangaroos too but that's a whole other thing obviously yeah. um but it's just one of those species that just is in that mainland australia it's a whole bunch of them and they're just these big flightless birds and they've been they're, actually i believe they're on the australian coat of arms now they are they're like part of their culture yeah cultural icon of australia yep it's 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 it actually it's also on some coins they said 
All right, so what's going on with this emu war, uh, which actually did transpire and uh, and and actually happened? So let's kind of I think we should start with Great Depression 1920s and then get into why this war happened, which by the way took part in 1932 at the height of the Great Depression. Well, basically, what's going on is like you said, the Great Depression is going on. It's also after World War One, so that's important yeah, to understand now. So this is important thing to understand. So a lot of these World War One Australian soldiers come back, and the government wants to do something for them, wants to provide them with work, basically. And they try to do that by giving them plots of land in Australia to become farmers. They're saying, "All right, you're back. You fought for our country in World War One. Um, we thank you for that." And so we're yeah, we have this. no money to give you. So yeah, yeah. So we're just going to give you what Australia has a lot of just unoccupied land. Okay. So he gave over 5,000 ex-soldiers these plots of land and he wanted to convert them into farmers. And they were basically just cultivating wheat and raising sheep. That was pretty much what they were doing. There was over 90,000 of these small farms that were given to the veterans, but they still needed even more of them because they wanted to keep on doing it. And it's in the areas of Perth, which is in Western Australia. Again, I don't know much about um, the geographic region of Australia. And they started to do this. And what happens is then the Great Depression hits. But also, Perth, Western Australia, they say it's it's like a very unfriendly. To, yeah, it's, it's it's not you know farming the best place. Plain. Yeah, it's it, there's a reason why there's not much farming going on there to begin yeah. with. Very usable, yeah, very usable. And then what makes it even worse is the Great Depression hits in '29, causing the wheat prices to plummet, and the government promised subsidies for the wheat, but those subsidies never came. And we're going to get into that today. The governments are trying to help these veterans. And that's kind of another reason why this EMA war breaks out the way that it does. Yep. Yeah. The key here, too, is that the veterans, you have to understand, these are soldiers, World War One yeah. vets that are basically located in this one area of Western Australia. And initially, they're like, hey, this sucky land, but like, hey, you can do this. Why don't you cultivate this land? And they try to do it so much wheat that they wind up growing and all of a sudden the price of wheat drops so when the price of wheat drops they look to the government like all right you're going to subsidize this right and the government's like out, yeah, yeah. yeah we're totally going to help you out but then they don't and that becomes an issue because western australia starts speaking about potentially like you know seceding from the rest of australia yeah, like, yeah they said they're not being taken care of that's it Yep. There's a fear that these ex-military, these veterans might actually rise up. So what what do you do to kind of appease them a little bit? And But now you have a problem with these emus that are kind of moving over to the coast, to the western coast. Okay, I was it probably because of the droughts and everything going on. So yep. they're, moving, they're moving more, they're going to where the water is, where the food is themselves, right? Yep. So they're going over to that area. And then what's going on at this time too is they're a protected species in Australia at this time. So they're not yep. allowed to do anything to them. They're eating all the crops down to stubs. They're flattening down the crops because they're running all over. Remember, these are giant six foot tall birds that yep. are just like, and there's thousands of them. Okay, literally, yeah. literally thousands of them just running all over the place and they're just making a wreck of all these farms. So they're like, we have to do something. So they get reclassified as vermin yeah. in, the, in the 1930s. And this is allows the, the farmers to basically kill them on site if they want to, like a rat or anything of that nature. And these men, you know, had rifles and they start shooting these birds and it actually works out for a while, but they cannot put dents in their numbers and they actually put bounties on them, like if you kill, you get money for every bird that you yep. kill, and you have all these pictures. But it's just not making any real dent in the population because emos can actually reproduce, you know, pretty fairly quickly, pretty yep. fairly quickly for something their size. Plus, there's just such a big number of them anyway. Yep. 
And all the farmland, and because they had so much additional water supply was brought into this farmland to make available for livestock and sheep and other things, um, that's kind of what the emus are drawn to. So they keep oh, yeah. on coming back to these farms, and as they're destroying all of these, all the farmland, but also... Um, leaving the huge gaps and fences, other vermin like rabbits entered these farmlands now as well and started wrecking havoc. So farmers have yeah, had it's enough. Not, yeah. It's not just the emu, but the emus are like the big, still like the symbol of this, all of this basically. Yeah. So the ex-soldiers wind up um, sending a delegation to meet with the minister of defense, right? His name was uh, Sir George Pierce. And George Pierce also served in World War One. had a soft spot, I guess you might say, for the soldier settlers. And he was very much aware that they were dealing with a lot of issues. And it's almost, it became kind of like as an appeasement, right? Like The veterans couldn't get access to life, like the ammunition that they needed. They said, we need yeah. more bullets if we're going to kill all these um, birds, basically. So they they called like this guy, like you're saying, and they basically wanted to, the government wanted to show they were doing something to support these war heroes, yeah, right? Because the public really supported them for what they did in World War One. So they're like, oh, we really have to help these get these guys out. It's not helping our public image. You know, we have to go into the Great Depression. People don't have faith in the government. We have to show that we can help somebody and we help out these war heroes, these war veterans. It's it's good PR if nothing else. Yeah. And they're like, how hard is it just to send in the military is what they wind up doing. We'll give them some machine guns, have them just kill all these birds, you know, game set match. Everything's good. Emus decide yeah. not to uh, go along with that, basically. Exactly. The Minister of Defense says that, all right, listen, we're going to bring in machine guns this time around. And the deal is that because we're bringing machine guns, our military personnel is going to be doing the shooting. You know, troop transports, all that other stuff, you guys are going to help out. You farmers are going to provide food, accommodation, payment for the ammunition and everything else. But we will supply you, like the Minister of Defense says, we will supply you with the military personnel and with all the machine guns that are needed. And you will help finance that and basically pay for us staying here. He justified this to the government by saying that this is really good practice for the Australian army as well, because at least that way they're going hunting and they're they're practicing shooting these machine guns and this is good for going yeah. forward. F this field is, work. Yeah, and this is 1932. World War II is still, uh, you know, about eight years away. And actually World War II was fought very much so near Australia, eventually with the Japanese. So practice might come useful one day. So it all starts November 2nd, 1932. There's a um, small old group of 50 birds that they, the army decides, right, we're going to take these birds out. So they move in, they have, a, they form a, um, you know, formation behind the birds and then they open fire and the birds just scatter all over the place. Yeah. Remember, these birds are can run at 30 miles an hour. So they scatter themselves in all directions. And then on the casualties, I saw something only maybe killed like four or five birds. Yep. Like think about, they have all these soldiers, platoon of soldiers with machine guns that surround that, you know, wind up behind these birds. The birds are just sitting there, you know, looking around, eating insects or, you know, vegetation, whatever. And all of a sudden the machine gun starts blaring and they are actually all over the place within seconds. They only <laughs> killed like four. <laughs> like that's, that's crazy. But like, again, it's where they want to say they don't have the practice to hit them, where the guns malfunction, which we'll talk about later a little bit. But it was more of these emos are just could evade the bullets. Like it's almost like matrix style for them. Again, as the more I read about this and the more I was looking into it, I'm like, this is nuts. I mean, they send this army and they uh, 10,000 rounds are shot and they get like four emus. Yeah. Right? Out of 50. Like imagine that though. Like, like <laughs> what does that do for like the soldier's morale? Like you open up, I have this, we have this machine gun. We're going to go shoot a whole bunch of you know, emus. emus and they just miss <laughs> like nuts. over. Like, they just constantly miss. It's gotta be, I guess, demoralized. I was like, well, how did that just happen? You know, right. And after that, it becomes like predator style. Right. So next significant event is November 4th. And they're like, all right, the military decides they're going to establish an ambush. 
All right, so there's this local dam, and they know that usually about like close to a thousand emus are spotted near this position. So they start writing. I mean, this was all in military reports. They're like, there's thousand emus near this position. We will establish, you know, an ambush and flank them. Like, there, if when you read these reports, like, it yeah, sounds it's like, like this actual war. Yeah, yeah, like, actual war. I mean, enemy positions and stuff. So then this is this is where you mentioned this. You kind of briefly alluded to it before. The gunners wait and they get like really close to these birds and they're like really excited. Like we're going to get these thousand emus. And then they start trying to fire these machine guns. And as we know, these are World War One era machine guns, which are infamous for jamming. So same thing here. They get really close to these birds and these guns jam on them. And only 12 birds are killed. And the remainder of the thousand this time just scatter before any other shots could be made. And the birds are gone for the day. So now they're there from November 2nd. Now it's November 4th. And they still only shot a handful of emus. Maybe like 20. Yep. <laughs> Maybe like 20 of them. So it's not exactly working. And again, in this one too, I was reading about this ambush a little bit. They actually like concealed themselves. So they took like a special position, I guess, like, an, like an ambush. They like covered themselves in like shrubs and bushes, you know, like the camouflage. And we're going to sneak up to these emus. Don't see us. And we're going to open fire. And they still don't get a lot of them. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. And so the army says, all right, these guys are fast, so we have to get up over our speed, so we're going to try shooting them in moving trucks, right? That's yeah, the next thing that, that they start doing, yeah, right? Yeah. So the problem was, one, they couldn't really aim properly with, on the speeding trucks, but then they said they ambush a bunch of these emos on a truck, they start shooting at them, and they actually kill one of them, but because of the, how they're driving and how the, the emo dies when it's running, and it basically, his corpse gets tangled up in the vehicle steering equipment which caused it to veer off, like flip over and like destroy someone's fence. So again, this is like out of like a, I'm surprised they never made this into like some sort of like Adam Sandler comedy or something like that, right? I just saw they might be making this into a movie in next year. There you year. go. Well, well, we got there first. Okay. Yeah, in 2024, we're, we're, they're supposed to do it. We're talking about it first. Yeah, like some sort of emu war. Emu war. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> emu battles. But yeah, they basically trip up the, the truck. It falls over, takes out someone's fence. No one dies, luckily, but it does. It's, it's like almost because no one dies, it's almost comical. You know, like, oh, if I kill one, yeah, but its corpse then gets tangled up in, in our wheels and we take down one of oh, the yeah. farmer's fences. So the farmer's like, how are you guys not doing this? Yeah, <laughs> like, like, what are you doing? Like, we were having more success than you guys were at this point. And you just wrecked my fence too. Like, what is going on? You're the army and you can't take out a bunch of birds that can't even fly. So did you see how they justified it in their military reports to the government? Uh, and I quote, it said, each pack seems to have its own leader now, a big black plumbed bird, which stands fully six feet high and keeps watch while his mates carry out their work of destruction and warns them of our approach. Okay, that is why we can't guys, get them. Yeah. Yeah. These smart emus. <laughs> I think they said a couple of times, they're not, dumb, they're not dumb birds. That's what they said a couple of times in a lot of the reports that I read. They were saying, well, they're not, they're not that dumb. They're actually smarter than we thought. Well, yeah, they realize that you're trying to hurt Kill them in some way. They're going to they're gonna pick that up. And now every time, last couple of times they saw you, you hope you started shooting at them. So they're going to realize when I see those weird looking things over there, I better, I better get away. 
So by November 8th, so that was six days after another engagement, they're still firing like 2,500 rounds of ammunition every time they try to see or they have, there's a sighting of emus. But again, the actual est- official estimates that within six days of being there and trying to find these emus and whatever they find them shooting them, the estimates are about 50 birds that they killed. And other accounts try to race that and say maybe it was 200, maybe it was 500, but officially it's probably about 50 birds they managed to kill out of 20,000, we should mention. The uh, commanding officer's report to the government was very proud because they had suffered no casualties in the process. Well, let's hope not. Well, yeah, they're <laughs> fighting you, emus, right? Let's hope they don't Nuts. have any casualties. Yeah. So the, you, they actually were allotted only so much um, ammunition too. Did you yeah. see about Like they yeah. weren't allowed to just be using all the ammunition as they wanted because that was, you know, this is depression, money's tight and can just be spending all this money on these birds. And so they actually talked about, I guess, one um, New South Wales um, politician actually kind of like was being a little facetious. Oh, that's he was that. like, he was like, oh, should we give a medal of honor to any of these um, people for this war? And then one of the people from Western Australia responded, one of the legislators from Western Australia responded and they were like, um, if we do, it has to go to the emos because they've won every battle so far. Oh, man. So, like, Ooh. so the emos are just dominating right now. The fact that they're just surviving, which is all they have to do. Yeah. There, I saw another known director of a museum in Australia at the time commented in the newspaper. And uh, this was kind of funny, too. He said the machine gunners dreams of point blank fire into serried masses of emus were soon dissipated. The emu command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics and its unwieldy armies soon split up into immeasurable small units that made use of the military equipment uneconomic. The country is laughing at the military. How are you having this problem taking out a bunch of birds? So basically, Major Meredith, the guy in charge, the commanding officer, orders a withdrawal. After November 8th, he actually compares the emus to the Zulus. If you guys ever know anything about the Zulu tribe, um, it is an ethnic group native to South, uh, South Africa. One of the most fierce warriors. And that's what this guy yeah. compares these emus to. The emus um, to, yeah, because, well, they do the math, right? I'm sure you saw that. And they said that it was they were killing emus a bit more at this point, about 100 a day. 100 every week, excuse me. But they did the math and they said it was taking about 10 bullets to bring down just one emu. Because, well, they miss and they hit whatever. So that's not, that wasn't really like a good bullet to emu ratio. So that's why yeah, he was um, he was recalled. And then they pretty much said, all right, sorry, farmers, we tried. The money that's going to cost to keep this going is just not worth it. Yeah. He also stated in his final assessment that if we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. And that kind of stops the initial emu war, but that's not it. There's a second. There's like a part two. Basically, he said, like, the army's not going to do this anymore, right? Yeah. So the government basically said, you know what? We're just going to give the locals ammunition. We're just going to give you guys a whole bunch of ammunition and do what you need to do. So we're going to give you the weapons. And the locals figure out pretty quickly that it's not worth using the machine guns, that the rifles are actually better yep. with it. You can kind of take aim, take your time, and then pick them off that way. And then they basically they started to take care of the problems themselves. And they kill over 57,000 emus in about six months alone in 1934. I mean, this happens only about a week later. So I think it's November. They leave on November 8th. And November 12th is when uh, the government grants the actual veterans permission to fire themselves but even then the military does come back for a couple of days and again even though the military comes back with some machine guns they still manage to only kill 40 emus um, yeah machine guns are just not a way to go after emus yeah it just doesn't work they said that eventually within a month official report claimed that about 986 emus were killed 
with a total of almost 9,860 rounds. It's like you said, 10 rounds per confirmed kill. But also then to save himself and save face, the military said that another maybe 2,500 wounded birds had also died as a result of the injuries that they sustained from our shots <laughs> yeah. sometime so later. We're saying they didn't kill, they didn't die right away, but they died later. <laughs> like, again, like, it's like we did what we're it's like the mil- military. Yeah, we took them out. All right, so this this, this doesn't end, by the way. It kind of ends at that no, point. Well, a little bit, but they come back again. Emus are just uh, repopulating. So the, the farmers actually asked for help a few other times, right? They do it again in 1943. They asked for help. They asked for help in 1948 again. These yeah. times they're turned down by the government. The government's like, we got other things going on. Obviously, 43, the war's going, World yeah. War II is going on. 48, the war, war's pretty much over. They're dealing with Cold War and all those ramifications yeah. of what's going on. Well, they working. turned and to that bounty thing you told me about before. Like they, they, started doing, they started doing bounties. And again, they say, we'll give you some ammunition here and there. But it's still a problem for those farmers. In, uh, in those in that area, the emus just keep on coming back because again they're looking for water. The farms have the water. They're going to come to that area. Oh, why they're there? They're going to chow down on some wheat. They're going to stomp over everything. These are giant birds. Don't forget, nuts. You know how they wound up solving most of the issues later on? Uh, it was kind of crazy that this was not thought out before. They basically started putting up more fencing. Yeah, they put up a fence. I saw that. They're like, <laughs> oh, wait a minute, but we can just put up a fence. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like it's like. Okay, like that was the that was the big issue. Then you know, we just put up a fee, spit all this money, and having all these machine guns and killing all these birds. Oh wait, we could have just put up a fence, and we would have been fine. Yeah, in 1950s, along with uh, strengthening some of the fence laws and say like, yeah, you guys could put up the fences whenever you want, wherever you want. The federal parliament also um, had the army minister release .303 ammunition to the farmers at will whenever they they needed or felt like they had an emo problem. They could turn to the government for free ammunition. The 50s, they released about 500,000 rounds of ammunition um, to local farmers so they could you know, deal with this issue going forward. And I did see, uh, you're right about the movie. They, they, apparently, they're supposed to begin production at this year. It was written by John Cleese from Monty Python. And Rob Schneider is also attached to their project. I wonder if they're going to make this like a so, cartoon thing or something. Or it's well, probably it's going to be, be like a- uh, It says it's an action comedy retelling the events. Yeah. So, and there has been a there has been a musical play, apparently in Australia about it also, the the emo war. So it's part of their pop culture. Yeah, yeah. Do you notice that also once this was happening shortly after like 1930s, 40s, a lot of people in Great Britain overall were upset about the fact that machine guns were used against. Bird. Well, they yeah, they, the emu had kind of like this like majestic like um, reputation. So they're saying, how dare they use these against these like majestic type birds and stuff like that. Um, I guess that kind of covers the emu war. I mean, I, I never thought this was going to be a long one by any means, but. No, well, the war itself wasn't. I mean, the war, if you want to call it that. I mean, what do you call it a war? I guess a military was brought in, maybe a military action, right? Or something like that. Yeah. I don't know what it classifies as a war, but it makes, it sounds good that way. The emu war. No, and they yeah. loved, and, and they know it's crazy too because they love their emus. Um, yeah, just, they've just been a nuisance at that time. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there are around six hundred um, places in Australia with emu in their title, um, like official places: mountains, lakes, hills, plains, creeks, oh, yeah, waterfalls. Yeah, um, you know, emus are it's the jam. It's the trademark of early Australian companies was was emu. They say that it's popular and unofficially considered the national bird of australia even though it's not considered it's official but it's unofficially considered the bird and like i said it's on a 50 cent coin you know they like their emus just not too many of them and not in 1932 well, a, well not that time yeah because there's a lot of them now right this is like over yeah. seven hundred thousand emus which is just a pretty healthy number nah. these i wouldn't want to see seven hundred thousand emus running around that would freak me out 
I don't like birds. You don't like birds? I like the eagle. Yeah, well, <laughs> birds should fly. If you're not, if you're not, if you're not flying, there's something, there's something <laughs> sketchy. Or my son say something sus going on. Oh, so. nice. Oh, you don't wait. So you don't like penguins either? Uh, not particularly. No, they, they <laughs> wallow. They wall around. Uh... You know. They're a bad Batman villain. Like so much truth coming out in this podcast today, guys. <laughs> yeah. About the emus, emu war bringing out. And Tom does not like birds. I don't mind birds. I like chicken wings and stuff like that. They're good on my plate. <laughs> you like to eat them. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> but. On that note. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, guys, for tuning into a nice short podcast on the emu war. Hopefully you found this interesting. You guys could totally go out there and try to Google. There's just a lot of information about it. Yeah, a lot um, of pictures. A lot of pictures. I, I would say more pictures than information, per se. But nonetheless, very, very interesting. So if you guys need to contact us, please feel free to do so. You can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. We are always here to answer any of your questions. If you guys have any comments or any suggestions, please feel free to send those to us as well. Thank you so much, and we'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. Watch out for the emus. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.